0: Today's show is brought to you by Hana. For the past few years, I've been taking Hana One, an all-natural, daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. Hana also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit Hana.com, that's dot com and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Afromo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Alex Wolfe. During 15 years at the English Institute of Sport, Alex served as Head of Strength and Conditioning and Head of Learning. He helped Team GB win its most ever rowing medals at the London Olympics, and then went on to co-found Strength and Conditioning Academy, write the book Strength and Conditioning for Rowing, and develop programs for coaches and leaders worldwide so that they can learn, grow, and achieve their goals.
1: Right on. Thanks, Alex, for joining us.
2: Thanks for giving up some time to
1: speak to me. You bet. So uh, I saw on Twitter that you were recently in Rome. Uh, Tell us about that. That looked like a lot of fun. Um, You said uh, it was a brilliant time, and uh, the food was pretty good too. So share a little bit about that with us.
2: Yeah, so... I I set up a company with two two friends um about a year ago which provides coach education and consultancy around strength conditioning and one of our projects is out out in Italy so we were out there delivering part two of a workshop uh, over in Rome um which is always a great place to go anyway at any time of the year but it's, it's always especially good when you get to meet some really good people and I uh, said the the food is always exquisite there. So it's not good for my waistline, but definitely good for your, for your mind. But yeah, so we're just doing a lot of coach education out there, um, which was, which is where we're kind of spending most of our time at the moment.
1: Yep. What, what turns you on most right now in terms of, uh, you know, with your career, anything that you're learning about, or, you know, might be providing these workshops. uh, What is most exciting for you right now in terms of your profession?
2: So one of the, Bits of work I do is for a organisation called the National Centre of, uh, of National Centre for Creativity Enabled by AI, and it's part of City University in London. And one of the big projects we're working on is a thing called Sportsparks, Sparks, which is a digital creativity problem solving and I suppose personal effectiveness tool. And rather than being the, the, the whole idea is about not trying to give people answers but getting people to use the principles of creativity and problem solving to help come up with their own their own uh, solutions to the everyday coaching problems they have um so that's been probably the most exciting because it's it's properly outside of my my comfort zone um in terms of some of the stuff we're doing but yes it's really good fun because you're getting to engage with coaches from Grassroot levels right the way up to Olympic and Paralympic and professional sports. And they're getting to help co-create and co-design this this tool, which we hope will be much more um, available uh, in, in, in the coming years and so on. And, and that, that for me is where, where my passion lies, which is, is around coach development and helping others to, others to succeed. And this, I think, is probably a new and novel way to, to look at it rather than the more traditional approaches
0: to learning. That's really cool. Where did that passion for for coaching development um, in terms of your own coaching come from? And then from there, how did that transfer to kind of empowering other coaches to be the best that they can be?
2: I'd like to say it was a deliberate act of recognising that's what I wanted to do. But actually, I think I fell into it more than than anything else and then fell in love with it. Um, So probably around 2012, 2013, after the London Olympics, I was working with the rowing program, and I was going through a lot of transitions. And then, opportunity came up to um, take on a more coach development role within within the organisation I was working with, the English Institute of Sport. And I needed a change because I couldn't. I didn't want to do another another four years as it, as it was. So I started doing that, and very quickly realised how much enjoyable. Or not more enjoyable, how enjoyable it was to to actually work with the coaches, not just, just the athletes. And then the opportunity came in twenty thirteen to lead the entire department of about sixty odd coaches, which um that's where I really grew and I, I spent that, that five years in that role recognizing that it wasn't just about governance and quality assurance and ticking the boxes. It was much more about the people and actually what their what their um uh, hopes challenges what they needed support around where they where they needed sh- some stretch opportunities and so on and that's why i kind of probably made most of my mistakes but also kind of ground my ground um the hours out really to kind of work out what what works and what doesn't work which is kind of where we've where i've got to got to now really i'm still making those mistakes but probably less than i did that then
0: Yeah, that's really cool. What was um, something that you kind of had to learn on the fly during that period and once you accepted that leadership opportunity? Well, the the two big things I remember is one is you need
2: to be patient, uh, that learning isn't linear, um, and not everyone will learn in the same way or learn what you hope they will um, um, learn from that. And the second probably is, the um, you, you, people need space, and I had to be comfortable with, with myself that I didn't need to be present for learning the, the official learning the, the official learning events. To be, um, I didn't need to be there in, actually in their space. And I didn't need to be facilitating that. One of the things we came up with was this idea of time, space, and structure. As long as we gave that time, space, and structure, people will fill it themselves, and I don't need to be there. That's really That was really, really uncomfortable for me in those early days because I felt I wasn't really doing a job if I was just standing on the sidelines while they, while they were do, doing it. But now it's a core principle um, in everything we do that um, um, we can't uh, impose our voice, our opinion, um, and we almost need them to create their own reference point of, what they're trying to achieve rather than me judging them on my reference point of who I am and what I've done. So that's probably the biggest, the biggest, and, and still, still having to wrestle with slightly with some of the things we do.
1: Yeah. That, that reminds me of, uh, uh, one of a uh, sports psychology mentors of mine, uh, Ken Reviza, uh, who unfortunately passed away, but he worked with, uh, Chicago Cubs when they won their first world series in a hundred years. And, uh, he's worked with a lot of teams and whatnot, but, um, yeah, he said on one of the first uh, road trips when he was working with, I think it was the uh, Anaheim Angels at the time, Major League Baseball team, he went on a road trip. They paid him a lot of money to go on the road trip, and he didn't talk to anyone. <laughs> and and uh, the general manager was impressed. The general manager said, you know, how did it go? He said, no one came up to me. I, I enjoyed it. I watched a lot of baseball, uh, but no one came up and asked me any sports psychology questions. And he said, great. You didn't try to, you know, force anything. Um, and then he hired him, and so it was kind of one of those stories where he resisted the urge to try to be too helpful or to, you know, try to teach too much, um, and so the, I always, like, took that to heart that, you know, um, that sometimes helping isn't helpful and that, you know, it is a process, and like you said, we all need to be patient even if we have a lot of good answers and a lot of good stuff to share, so I, I love that story. Now, you're, uh, you're an expert in, in, in uh, strength and conditioning for rowing, uh, were you a rower growing up or did you just kind of, how did you fall? When did you fall in love with rowing?
2: Uh, good question. We, we were, we was on a big forum last night and actually one of the things we were talking about last night is, is not so much how much people fall in, fall into rowing is how they never get out of rowing. Um, which is probably my, um, my, my, uh, um, my position. So I, I, I took on a leadership role of the programme, the British Rowing Programme in 2009, just after the the Beijing Games. And again, it wasn't by any design that I I, um, wanted to work specifically with rowing, but a leadership opportunity arose and I was um, moving on from athletics, uh, British athletics at the time. Um, And then I kind of stayed there uh for a long time and still still do a lot of work a lot of work with them so i never rowed before um uh, before i got into the rowing program but um i do hold the record i think at the british rowing training lake of falling into the water the most amount of times the first time someone gets into a boat i think it was eight times in probably about as many minutes um so i so i i have learned to row and i did row for um a while 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 in the in the program um but I kind of fell in fell in love with it again with just for, for a number of reasons. One is the brutality of the sport. It's not a it's not a um, not an easy sport to for the athletes to 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 do because um, you never actually see where you where you're going, or if you're on the ergo, you're just watching yourself in the mirror, and that's a, quite a monotonous thing to do. But the people in rowing um, are my it's my biggest memory. There's some, I've met some amazing people along along the way, and one of the coaches I've when I quit quit rowing and left rowing, I end up moving uh, with them to do some consultancy with the Chinese program as well. And uh, he's now now moved on, but now I'm still consulting the Chinese um, because again, they're just really good people. To uh, I don't know if it's if it's the Olympic sports or if it's the rowing itself, but it's, yeah, I've just got a really big affinity to so the people that do it and their passion for it as well.
0: Yeah, with regard to um, the build-up to to London, what did you try to either compound that was doing? They were already doing well, um, and what did you try to shake up a little bit? Because if I'm not mistaken, I mean we've obviously had some some golden years with GB rowing, you know the the Redgrave and Pinsent glory days and many more since, but. Um, that was a really impressive medal haul in the London Games. So, what what were some of the tenets of the program in that build up um, since you came in um, in that transition?
2: Yeah, I think the, the the two things that stick out for me one was um, actually around race day and the tapering down to uh, for for major competition and actually spending. More time really understanding how we can um, optimize performance in the preparation for the games and optimize race day race day performance. So, I, I think people have this um, historical um, bias around what they've done as an athlete, and this, these are the athletes themselves that they would they would do their warm up that they bought from their clubs into their senior program. And So, when we audited the program, we had our key. Key objectives: what we believe they need, they needed to achieve within the uh, warm-ups and and then the race day preparation, and actually the end and, and recovery from that. There was quite a big gap between what we felt needed to be done, and what was actually being done. So we closed that gap quite quite quickly, um, and actually they're still uh, that so they're still using the same kind of auditing process of what what happened. So I think that was a big the big thing, and that they they were able to do. The second thing is kind of how strength training was viewed within within the rowing program. I think traditionally it's seen as a an add-on and almost like a cross training or a, just a different way of creating another stimulus for, for rowing performance, just not on the water. Well, I changed the, the, the philosophical approach to uh, like, there are some genuine force and velocity characteristics that you can change in the weight room, which will have an impact on performance. In the boat. And it was the big thing I tried to do was try and connect that to certain parts of the of the race. So the first stroke in the rowing race is different to the, the other 240 odd strokes that they take because it's a static start. And the first five are trying to get the boat up to speed. So there was a clear and obvious advantage of being really forceful and having the capability of being able to apply force against a dead weight to start with. And the second bit was around this idea of rapidly changing rates. Um, so you could quite quickly, um, find two areas, I want to say rate the speed at which they're, they're, they're rowing or the rates that they're rowing and being able to change from a lower rate to a higher rate and not taking more than a couple of strokes to get there. And I think those were two kind of areas which we could really target. And the coaches, uh, most of the coaches bought into that. Um, and that became part of the technical model. So I think those were the, the two biggest, bits and I clearly look at this through rose tinted glasses because when I talk about it now it's like, like that was just a really simple process but it took probably four years to get any real significant traction from, from what it looked like then to what it originated as and it was, a, it was a it was a it was a chasm between what it was and what what it what it became um, and it probably still was a mile away from where we probably fully could get to but it was a significant difference
0: that's really cool. Yeah. Um, with regard to the patience that you mentioned earlier, how do you temper that with your desire to come in and barnstorm and get things done? And, uh, you know, that, that kind of continuum and, and recognizing, yes, this is a long haul, but still in this case, you know, you're targeting the London Olympics. Obviously all eyes are going to be on team GB in every event. So, um, yeah. Where, where, did that land for you between patients and, uh, you want to come in and take a hold of this thing and get it to where, you know, it needs to be.
2: Yeah. Very difficult, difficult. It was, um, cause you're right. Like I, my, the nature of how I tend to operate, I, I think I've got a fairly strong ethic and work ethic in terms of trying to move things forward. And that definitely burnt me in those, in those very early interactions. Um, and actually, to be fair, actually, it was a really good sports psychologist that I worked with—a lady called Sarah Cecil, who works with the British program uh, in the, the Olympic programs. Um, she she um, she always she always spoke about timing and landing a message and making the message 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 sticky, and that a coach is not going to listen to you if they're in a training session or the back end of a training session, uh, but they're also not going to listen to you um when they have uh, got downtime and they need to do uh 40 athletes programming and she was very good at helping me kind of kind of navigate like when when would be the best time to to have these discussions and actually she the, the, so i had I, so it was about about being patient and it was about identifying those key moments and it was the first thing in the morning between 6 30 and 7 o'clock when nobody was about um and they were there pondering about and actually we, we do a lot of cross training in um, uh, where, where did we go? Miorca So we end up doing, they do a lot of cycling and you end up driving a lot with the coaches in the car for three or four hours a day. And that then became the perfect opportunity um, to to prime one of the, 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 one of the coaches I really needed to try and influence around some of this stuff. Um, and actually, I, I had three weeks out there and it was a kind of a drip feed I don't think it was. I don't think it was deliberate. As again, as I, as I, as I talk about it now. But I, I know I didn't go all guns blazing in the beginning. But by the end of it, we're already discussing when we get back to the UK, what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. Um, and actually, I got a lot further in those three weeks than I probably would have done if I'd carried on banging on the door and trying to be, be heard. And I think the other bit I have to recognise is that coaches have so much to deal with and I'm just one of those things to deal with um and it's easier for a coach to say no if um they can't see the value or it's interfering with the things that they value most and that was part of my kind of process of trying to really understand where where their values lies and how I can support that but also not compromise what they what they value most
1: yeah, it's it's quite a challenge in terms of, you know, trying to have a big impact, but uh not getting in getting in the way too much. And, you know, trying to be part of the furniture, you know, in terms of just being, you know, everyone being comfortable around you and uh getting to know everyone. And so that's a that's a process. Um and then you came out with a, a book recently on rowing, uh strength and yeah. for rowing. Uh, how did, how did you find time for that and what was that process like? And uh, it sounds like an exciting book because um, not only does it, you know, obviously help with strength and, con- and conditioning for rowing, but uh, transcends that to a lot of cool topics. And and I saw one on the importance of the trunk area that you were that you were talking about that uh, every rower or most rowers that you've talked to, like, you know, you'd think that would be their strength, but not not always.
2: Yeah. Um, how did I find time to write it? I'm not sure. Um, it just kind of – just kind of <laughs> – happened. I, I remember being um, on holiday in uh, in Morocco with, with the family and we were all sharing a room and by about 9 o'clock everyone was falling asleep and I was still wide awake so I just sat on the balcony and thought I'd just start writing. So I did and by the end of the holiday I'd written about 30,000 words and I thought well that's probably half a book so um, I thought well okay, well let's I, I spoke to a publisher and they're like yeah we're, we're keen so I think I then finished the other 20 25,000 words over the next kind of eight to ten weeks uh, and got a few other people to contribute and it was it was done. Um, but it gave me and the part of the reason why um, I started writing was there were things in my head that I needed to get out and actually just try and put some coherence to it and I think the problem I have is that it makes sense to me because I think about it the whole time. But if you put it in front of somebody else, like it makes no sense, which is well why I wanted to do is try and make it a lot more coherent around that. So and then I also felt that like there was a there's always I think in strength conditioning and probably in most professions, there's a big piece which is always missing, which is around kind of the, the act of being the coach or the act of being a psychologist or whatever it is. It's not just about the skills you learn, it's about your your position and kind of who you are, how you go about doing it, what, what you value most, what your principles are or philosophies are. And I really wanted to kind of nail down that bit there as well, how that's really influenced me um, and how that's helped me kind of progress. And so that's where the start of the book actually starts. And then what you talk about towards the end of the, 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 the trunk bit. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever worked with a rower who hasn't had a, a back injury, mm-hmm. um, which is oh, the damning indictment of the, of, of a sport, which, um, that you, that you can't row without about ba- without a bad back but one of the things i spent a huge and still do now um in fact I, i've calculated i probably have tested over 6000 times of rowers backs around uh, whatever number the number of the um the assessments we do i'm fairly confident now that we can reduce that risk and if they do end up getting injured we can return them back more more effectively just by better understanding the, the mechanics of injuries and what what people's predisposition to an injury might be based upon how they row, their their kind of anthropometric makeup and um just the type of rowing that they do. Um so yeah, it's been so the book hope kind of kind of captured my journey, not just as a rowing S and C coach, but as a coach full stop and that that's kind of what I was trying to get, get out of it.
0: Well, anytime you write that quickly, that means that there's passion there um, and there's a lot of ideas there because, I mean, that's, you know, obviously Jim and I writing books ourselves. That's a, a fair clip to put it mildly. So um, the results are self-evident in terms of how quickly you did it and uh, and the thoughts you were able to get down. Um, we, we just talked about kind of a, a physical challenge in terms of that uh, low back area and, you know, the, the trunk and the torso, but... If if you could go back to to the sports psychologist that you mentioned, what were some other things that you gleaned from her in terms of principles and mindset and um, the mental game?
2: So I I um, before I got into rowing, I was I was working with athletics, but I was also an athletics coach. I used to coach the javelin um, and some Paralympic throwers and in, in the seated throws and she was quite instrumental in my thinking around that you can't recreate the emotion. You can't recreate the, the Olympic games or a major championships, but you can recreate the emotional uh, experiences that athletes may, may, may have during those uh, competitions. And one of the throwers I was working with was really struggling with the idea of throwing and not having um, feedback on, how they were forming like the result of the throw just wasn't good enough for them to realize that um, they were throwing well or throwing bad and so she was really she helped me out quite quite a lot in recreating environments for this thrower which then allowed us to kind of work out where he was really where he was really struggling and she helped me to help him have more confidence in his own ability. And actually like, he ended up and came second in the under 23s and fourth or fifth in the in the national championships that year before he became injured and couldn't throw again. But it was it was a really interesting way that she she helped me to to consider um those that recreation of emotions because it's something I still take now and um when we do some of kind of the, the leadership and people development work we do. We we can quickly turn an environment where people become very emotional, um, and we didn't think people would, um, and we kind of kind of leverage that to help people understand why they might get to that point in the, in the first place. Um, and then the other thing she she um, um, she did for me, and it wasn't just sales, a, f- a few others, but what she was really good at um, was really helping me prioritize what I valued most um and helped me to understand about the um the compromises it's, it's all right to compromise as long as it's not a, it's not a, a lifetime of compromise that you might compromise here and there but actually there are certain things that you you can't do too much or you should, or you should never and she was she was very good at kind of holding me to account to the things i did or didn't do um almost like a critical friend in that in that space of saying, oh, well, you told me you were going to do this, but you've gone and done that. I was like, oh, yeah, you're, you're right. So um, it's never comfortable, but it's probably what what I needed at the time. But also she helped me, for me personally, but also when I was leading, leading the strength conditioning team to kind of really understand what our values were around how we wanted to lead the, the strength conditioning team and how we wanted those individuals to feel and how they um, could actually we were there to support rather than to be the a, a stick behind them telling them they, were, they weren't doing it and I think I, I, obviously I'm going to say this and I'm very biased to but in 15 years in that organisation I think those years where we had a, a very consistent leadership team and support from Sarah do, helping us with some of that, that stuff we had probably the best um, cohort of coaches who were self-driven to um, propel themselves forward to, to try and find the most uh most get the most out of themselves and again have a better balance with with them in and outside of work and I, and that's probably one of my things I'm probably most proud of actually like it was there was a big it was a big team and we were able to really support them particularly up to the Rio games we had this kind of Rio tracker which was not about medals but it was about well-being and welfare and um support for every coach going to the games or to the holding camps or who were staying back in the UK because if you don't get the t-shirt going out to Rio then um, it's quite a demoralising point as well and being able to support them as well so we had this whole whole thing just purely on the well being of staff and the feedback we got at the back end of that was that without that we would have, we would have lost a few casualties along along the way and I think that's probably um, yeah from the kind of the non-technical side of the kind of the, the mindset thing I think that was probably the one of the, the biggest um, yeah, proudest things I, we, we've probably achieved in that space.
1: Yeah. I love that. You could have your cake and eat it too. You know, that's a, that's a real win-win there. Um, we might have to have her on the <laughs> on the podcast as well. And, and and, uh, and, and then you need to nudge her to write a book too. <laughs> she sounds awesome. She sounds really great. Yeah. I love how uh, it sounds like you just had a great team of excellence where you had, you know, different departments working really well together and things weren't too siloed and, um, and and I love that about Phil and I. We talk a lot about values in our new book, The Leader's Mind. So I, I just think that's so important. A lot of times we, uh, you know, think about goals and, and and dreams and 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 whatnot, but we forget what are the values that are going to help us most to achieve those and, and and achieve those in the right way. So I think that's great. Uh, any values that you'd be willing to share with us that are, uh, are are near and dear to your heart?
2: Yeah. Well. well I'm probably more explicit now than I've ever been. Um, And there there is is family fulfillment and fairness. Um, And in in that hierarchical order that I, while I will um, want a fulfilled, fulfilled life, not at the expense of affecting my family and friends. And I'm a big believer in fairness, but again, not at the sacrifice of um, hurting hurting my family. And, And maybe that's a very, Uh, selfish way of looking at it, but I I, I, I used to present it as three equals, but then I realised that actually it can't be three equals um, because I wouldn't um, step into an event or an experience where I saw inequality going on, which I know would directly hurt my family, so that's kind of where I've now hierarchically hierarchically ordered them. Um, And probably fulfilment and fairness are probably equal, but that that's where 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 it is um but it's taken me a long time to be able to again be coherent of what what that is or what that really means means to me and it's changed as well over over the last five six years and and it's probably settled much more around that now that i work myself like i'm much more aware of why they're important to me and you've said it just there jim like it's almost my north star now like when something comes through the door or, or on the phone about doing something like it it's a sense sense check straight away. Can I do that? Yes or no? Well, I can't do that. So, so it's, it, it makes making decisions a lot easier.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Um, is it hard to find that that sense of perspective when you're caught up in an Olympic cycle? Because I imagine it could be pretty pretty all-consuming when you're in the trenches there, particularly as as it starts to ramp up actually towards the Olympiad itself.
2: Yeah. Yes. Is a short answer. The slightly longer answer is um, a lot of the, the a lot of the work we did around this, either for myself or for or for the team. We we kind of start after a major um, after a major games, and you don't try and do too much in, into the into the lead up to the into that last year um, because yeah, you're right. Nobody has headspace, um, and actually, if people care about it, but. It's just not a priority. And I think one of the things we 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 started terming it like terming it like it's not about um time, it's just about prioritization. And in that year there, the prioritization isn't about self-discovery, about what what value what what the um what you hold most valuable to yourself. It's 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 about helping those who you're employed to do reach reach their, their finish line. And then when we get back to there, then there's a reprioritization, we have more time, time to consider that. And then we can work through, work through a process, and I think that's that's um, the only way. When you, and particularly when you're working four year cycles, it, it may be different when you're uh, in, in in club or in professional sports, where it's more consistency year on year on year in terms of how that the seasons look. But in the that's why the Olympics are every four year because you can't do the fourth year two years in a row. Um, because it's too too br- brutal on every for everybody, not just the athletes. So yeah, it, it's just a redistribution of priorities, um, and then realigning them where, where, where you can.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm still thinking about you falling in the water <laughs> eight times. <laughs> that's well, that's that's a good way to uh, and being you know kind of being vulnerable to be able to share that stuff. I think is is great for building trust, and so I could see where. Uh, how personable you are really helps people feel comfortable around you and and then that really helps with the learning environment um um tell us a little bit about your passion for um a little bit more about your passion for for leadership and learning you know those go definitely go hand in hand and uh what a great topic because you know the the people that phil and i have interviewed for you know about leadership for a book and otherwise um it's just it's just fun learning how people you know identify their values and and what they learn in terms of uh, you know how to be the best leader they possibly can be and there's no finish line to that there's always more to learn and that's what's fun about it so yeah any thoughts on uh, any more thoughts on leadership and learning yeah so
2: the when you start talking about the no finish line the first thing that comes in, into my head is um, there's two books i've read well, one by Simon Sinek and i can't remember the other guy's name now but it was about the infinite uh, infinite games, and and that really struck a chord to me about um, it's a journey and not not a not an end destination. And I think that for me is um, which is why I think I've been able to survive so many Olympic games because the Olympic games itself is not necessarily the destination anymore. It's just part of the the kind of the journey that you that you that you you get there. Um, but fundamentally, for me, le- leadership. Is not the title you have, but it's the way in which you think and the way in which you treat others. And I think for me, that that if you look at it from that perspective, anyone and everyone is or has the capability to be a leader if they um, if they so desire to uh, desire to be. And there's there's some really good stuff by a guy called Julian Stodd who talks about the the, the social leadership um, and how in most tribes or communities, there is a, a social leader, which is being almost bestowed upon that person to, um, it's not an official role. It's not got a title, but people look up to that person because they're the one that will, will hold the truth. Um, and will say the truth to the people that need to hear the truth. Um, and they will protect the rest of the, the community. Um, and, but as quickly as you can be given that social status, it can be removed by the people that gave it to you, um, which then comes back down to back down to this, the, the trust. And that's a bit which I think is really important. Is, is about this idea of um, when you we we all collaborate and we we all work within within spaces, and we all have have opportunities to um, augment or in, or create greater environments for people to excel um and one of the bits i always talk about with with me is like knowing when i'm getting in the way um and and having the adaptability to know that i'm slowing things down or actually i'm, I'm hindering it but also knowing when others are or how i can then actually move, move into that space and again that 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 for me is not about the position that i've held or others hold it's just the way the way in which i view view people and the way in which i think um we could view ourselves in terms of what leadership really means to us um which then goes hand in hand with with the learning piece which for me is pretty much most of our courses and events and consultancies that we do always start with the point of reflection and being able to reflect effectively because reflection is a learning is a learning cycle and if we can't effectively reflect then we're we're uh blunting the opportunity to learn more, more effectively so that's one of the 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 big um the big things we we spend a lot of time on helping people understand what 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 reflection is and actually it's not just about reflecting in the moment but it's also about reflecting over long periods of time of what you've been doing and being able to make sense of that and then um have those cringe cringeworthy moments when you realize how much of an idiot you were and do something do something about it so i think le- learning is a so i suppose, learning for me is, is two, there's is two sides to learning as well. Like there's the, the acquisition of a insight, experience, knowledge, um, or, um, uh, experience. And then it's the application of that. And the learning cycle for me doesn't stop just with the acquisition of something. You have to then be able to apply it. And I always talk about this. You have to be able to apply it in, in and ground it in reality and not in the abstract so often people say well, what would you do if you did that again like well that's too abstract because you don't know what it can be done you have to ground it in genuine reality and their context their reality and what they can what they're going to do so i think there's a a big piece in both of those uh, while learning and leadership become so important because good leaders will learn and good um good leaders will will make sense of the world around them very quickly and kind of navigate the complexities of what they're having to do by having good sense-making. And I think that for me is, is that's why they're so, they're so critical in, in, um, everyday life, regardless of what position
0: you hold. No, I think that's really key that, um, obviously some part of leadership is being able to demonstrate the confidence to, to gain trust, but then you kind of alluded to what could be called the soft skills side of it as well, a little bit. um, how has that side of your thinking developed over time? In terms of, it seems like you have a really good perspective and a really measured approach, and are able to. You've learned to read the cues and know when to push a little bit, know when to back off. But how did that develop? And and what about that soft side of leadership that that you know may not show up on somebody's CV? If say you're evaluating mm-hmm. a new team member to come in, okay, should we go with that person or this person there? Maybe their skills are, are pretty equal. Um, how do you, you know, is, is it the soft skills that makes the difference? And then how how is that applied to your own growth and development?
2: Yeah, it's a that's a really good and interesting area to to to, to, to consider because I think most people will have a CV which is there or thereabouts. If you get through the door, you're going to be there or thereabouts. Um, and then it comes down, it does come down to, um, fit or character, and one of the um, one of when we've been in recruitments, kind of the, the major strap, the major kind of benchmark is do they have the character to deliver within this space? Um, and we describe character on a, on a number of, of, of um, levels, and some of that's around honesty and humility. Um, and actually, really interestingly, the the best gauge of I've still found of people people's kind of softer side or the softer sides of um positions is asking the administrators and the people that help you with the recruitment to give a sense of how they've been treated um so when you go into how was this person i said well didn't reply to any of the emails i sent out them didn't say hello when they came in um you know like well that gives you a sense of the character um, it may not be the true character because obviously there's stress within within that, but it gives you a gives you a kind of a, a sense of that. And one of the big things we are working on is like, how do you stress test character as well? But I'm not interested. Like, in, you know, you've got through the door because you've done your degrees and strength conditioning, and you know, your you're your knowledge is there, and it's going to be no different to anyone else. It's all about your your ability to connect with with people. And if you reverse recruitment to the opposite end of the spectrum to um performance management i've yet to performance manage somebody who hasn't been able to demonstrate uh, a back squat it's all been a failure to communicate to connect with the people they're working with um and it's all it's all people-based um skills which gives you an indication where what coaches or sports staff and athletes and I suppose in any organisation, what people value is other people, and and when that breaks down, it becomes really, really apparent. Um, so the recruitment is, is a good place, and the performance management is a good place. But for me personally, um, I think I've had to be—I'm quite—I'm quite introspective, and people often don't know what I what I'm thinking. Um, so I have to—I have to be more deliberate in sharing what I'm thinking and feeling. Um, and then when I'm um, working with with individuals, um, I don't give too much up. So I have to really work on making sure that they know that I'm listening, seeing and, and, and so on. So I've had to be really much more deliberate. So it's become more natural for me now. But 10 years ago, it wasn't It wasn't a deliberate, deliberate process. And the feedback I was getting was I'm quite cold and quite standoffish. And, and that really hurt me because it was... I didn't think that at all. I thought I was caring and quite, quite um, um, empathetic. Um, But it was just the way I, I conveyed myself. So a lot of it is that again, having that awareness and the reflections and the ability to take new, new insights and do something with it. So, um, and now I think where I sit now with this all is feedback and uh, reflections are just part of the, the learning cycle and you have two choices you can do something with it or you you can choose to ignore it um and if you choose to ignore it well then the consequences will be what they are and if you choose to do something about it then you have an opportunity to change something for the better and that's where i think where where i sit now that it's just another opportunity to uh, know more about myself and do something better to help help the next people i'm working with
1: Yeah, I think that's great um, in terms of uh, self-awareness really is the key to change. And it doesn't feel good when we're misunderstood, does it? And so uh, that's an important reminder for all of us and for leaders is sometimes we assume certain things about people and it it could be the exact opposite. And so what Phil and I like to talk about with with coaches is – you know, ask your, ask your players, you know, what, what are my expectations, what do you think my expectations are for you? What are your, what you know, what are your expectations for me? What are things I need to know about you that, you know, uh, that would help me to be the best coach for you? And, you know, those kind of questions really open up a lot of um, opportunities to have those kind of discussions and clear up some of those misunderstandings. So, uh, communication is, is everything. Uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, I think we've all been part of organizations or teams where communication, uh, really isn't there and, and it's hard to get anything special accomplished in those cases. So I think you made some really good points there.
2: Yeah. And I, I think one of the, the, um, key things for me, and again, talking about uh, the same psychologist, she, she, she said people will, you will judge yourself on your, intention of what you're trying to do so you think you're, you you're judge yourself on your good intention everyone else will judge you on your behavior um and they won't ha- unless you tell them what your intention is they will only judge you on what what you do um and that's quite haunting in 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 certain things because most people that i've dealt with are always doing it with the with a good intention but it's oft- often misconstrued to to from what they're observing and it's and that's where the gap is and that's where for me was really important i just to tell people a lot more what i'm trying to do
1: yeah that's the fundamental attribution error you know like if we cut off someone you know while we're driving we'll just say oh i i I didn't see them if some if we see someone else cut someone off while they're driving it's like oh that person's a jerk they don't care about anyone (laughs) so uh but yeah that's that's so important because Again, uh, if you could clear up some misunderstandings that you might have with someone like, hey, this person doesn't care, you know, they or, you know, well, maybe they're dealing with a lot of stuff on the outside. Uh, maybe I just need to find get to know them better instead of judging them as they don't care about being part of the team, you know, those kind of things. And then mm-hmm. the relationship can be even stronger. So,
2: Yeah, great.
0: So, Alex, um, one of the things that you've had to do is obviously, as well as managing teams in person, is manage remote teams. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of some some do's and don'ts with regard to communication in that setting?
2: Yeah, I think the 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 first thing is, regardless of how remote they are, and even when you're unable to potentially see people in person, I think there there is a genuine need to establish. Um, a working relationship, whatever that working relationship is, um, and the reason I say that is, before you start doing kind of group or kind of team-based communications, if the, if there isn't a a connection with that individual, it will it's unlikely to land, and there's a, a kind of a need to have that that um, that connection before you can you can communicate effectively within 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 a team or a group and i think one of the things when when you're when you're pressured with emails and trying to get get them out it's it's i also think there's a there's a need to kind of sense check what what's actually been asked asked of you uh, within within the email um and get an idea whether or not that's a, an email reply or you need to actually have a conversation about that and often um if the if the reply could be misconstrued, or it's going to take longer to write than say it, I would often say just go and have, have the conversation with the individual and and and, and see, see where it is. And the, the other bit for me is is when something doesn't feel right, it doesn't hurt to ask ask them, not email them, ask them what, um, um if if everything's everything's all right, because um, they will quickly tell you if everything is but they may also really appreciate that someone's looking out for them. And I think, I was having this conversation with my mum the other day um, about a friend of hers who was really struggling after the um, the uh, death of her, her daughter several years ago now. But mum was really worried about um, her friend and they were texting. I said, mum, you just gotta be brave and pick the phone up and ask if she's all right. Um, she said she doesn't think she is. and Mum did, like she not particularly the most. She finds those things most cha- quite challenging. And she she was brave, and she did have that conversation. Um, and the her friend ended up kind of un, unloading all everything that was going on, and and ended up getting some some support and help that she really required. And there's apparently a different different person now for where where she had before she had that conversation a couple of years ago. And I think that for me is a really good example of. Just being able to use your your spider sense of is this all right or not, and always uh, on the side of caution. But it does it does take a bit of bravery to be able to, well, yeah, bravery to ask those questions. But it's easier to ignore than to actually say some, something's um, something's not right and ask a question. So that would be my, I suppose my my take on that.
1: Yeah. I think in person too, it's important. I always try to remember that, you know, a lot of times we'll just say, Hey, how was your day as we walk by someone? And, you know, instead of looking in the, in the eye and showing genuine interest, like, Hey, how, you know, like put your arm on them, like how, how is your day going so far? You know, what's going yeah. on? And those things are just huge for, for, for leaders and, and for teammates. Uh, 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 those little things could go a long way. Cause, um, you know, that, that genuine connection is, is, uh, is so powerful. Um, Tell us uh, what do you well. I think a couple quick things. One is uh, you know we're post uh, Winter Olympics, and um, you know even though it's it's a journey, there's still some uh, mileposts along the way. And uh, you know what what have you seen? What are your thoughts? Uh, you know in terms of you and your staff, and then also your athletes in terms of kind of that post Olympics depression. You know, there's so much buildup, and then afterwards, you know, I've had a- athletes say, "Man, you know, I got all the tension in the world," and then after the games, no one even called me. <laughs> and so it could be a lonely, cold world, and and then you're adrift too. It depends on the situation. Could be like, "Well, man, that was my first Olympics. Now I got to wait four years for the next one, hopefully." And then others is, "Man, that was my last Olympics. What do I do now?" Mm-hmm. And so there's all these sorts of things going on. But yeah, just any quick thoughts on uh, on the post Olympics blues? Yeah,
2: so sorry it is clearly more challenging for, for athletes um, after the games. And I think a lot, a lot of, a lot of where it is, is because they've entwined their identity with the, with their performances or the success they've had had at the games. And that can be quite a difficult place to then start on untangling that and kind of making sense that you are who you are. And actually the performance doesn't make you, it's just a part of what you, what you do. And I think, that that does that does um clearly affect people from um first games to last games and everybody in the in, in between but i'd always i'd also say it affects staff equally as much um and when i was talking about that kind of change after the london games and needing a bit that's actually what happened to me like i i don't know if i had depression or not because um, it was never clinically clinically diagnosed but i after the london games I was um, I was really down and didn't really leave the house for about eight weeks and nobody kind of checked in at work to see if I was all right and it was only when there was a, I kind of gave myself a proper good talking to about actually, like I can't just sit in my pants watching TV all day, like I need to actually go and do something um, that I actually kickstarted myself and, and ended up doing something differently. But that and then I spoke about the kind of the 2016 and the kind of the well-being and welfare of the athletes. Well, that that experience for me that I, that I had in tw- after 2012 Games was almost a kind of a cornerstone of what I, of, of, of all my leadership is that no one should ever experience that again. Um, and they should always have somebody to have that they trust, they, that can they can talk to, uh, because I felt incredibly lonely. Uh, at the time, I didn't think I could talk to anybody. And part of that was my own doing because I was so wrapped up in the games and I kind of ignored, you know, sort of the things that were going on around me in terms of my friends and family. And um, But it was, um, I didn't want anyone else to have, to have to experience that again. So I think for me, it's um, it's recognising that it, it can happen. And, you know, it's, if it does happen, uh, you don't have to be alone, and actually, it doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, um, it's not wrong if it happens. It's just it can happen to anyone and everyone. Um, and actually, making sure there is a support network around you, um, to potentially identify early, support you when you need it, and if you do fall off the edge of the cliff with it, um, there's a pathway back. Um, and I definitely missed that, and that's for me now is where a lot of my my um uh, work around that. Um, working with individuals is is about that well-being piece as well as much as it is a performance piece because um performance comes from a, a healthy place as well
0: yeah do you think some of that is just you know we're all guilty of this to some degree i suppose never wanting to seem weak or incompetent and also wanting to you know sometimes we can be the the victim of a of a strong work ethic too so you put all those things together and you, you're like, well, I don't want to, <laughs> particularly if it's, you know, somebody who's, um, you know, you've just been driving forward towards this big goal for that long, as Jim alluded to, with regard to something like the Olympics, and then everything's been toward it, and now it's over, and so you're adrift that way. And then you layer in the, all right, well, I've just got to grab this thing, keep driving on to the next, and just keep going and going and going, and you don't mm-hmm. allow that time for self-reflection or self-appraisal and you just become, the, the worst things get maybe in your head, do you feel like you just some, somewhat become more and more insular when obviously, as you said, really what you need is that support network?
2: Yeah, it's, yes, uh, I think in, in, in short. I think the, the, the bit I'm aware of myself and speaking with others is um, catastrophes like that don't happen overnight like as a, a, a continual process and there's two things that i think Me, one is i chose to ignore it and i think people around me also chose to ignore it as well and i'm not putting i'm, and I'm not saying that to put any blame or anything on them because it clearly is there's nothing nothing to do with them um but i'm aware people were probably aware of how i what i was experiencing and that's when it comes back to the bravery piece as well like just reach out and actually you don't know you might be the the lifeline that they that they need. So so I do I do think think that and then you said about the weakness thing. Like, like the there's there is real stigma still attached isn't there around mental ill health and, and well being and that it's um it is I think in a large large portion people still believe that it's it's his weakness if you have mental ill health. And I don't think that is particularly well conveyed across the media through to the organizations that we have and and you know particularly when you're working in a high performance environment there can be there can be a a, a, a tendency to um demand that high performance and where's the space for you to actually safely go and have this conversation when actually the people that you're talking to don't want to hear that potentially, and I don't think that's always the case. But they want to know if you're putting in the extra hours to make the boat go faster, for lack of a better term. And I think that is a that is a, a dangerous dynamic to be. And things have moved massively over the last four or five years in that space, you know, like hugely um, from w- what I've experienced across across the board. But it's still a long way to go before I think people feel safe to be able to express what. Um, what's really going on and actually being able to push back on workloads and say, I just can't, I can't, can't do that. And what, what will end up happening? And this is what I was like as well. Like, you know, I've got stuff going on on the weekend with the kids and so on. And I've got this massive piece of work to do. So what do you do, get up at five thirty in the morning, do a couple of hours before the kids go and kids having lunch, laptops open, trying to get some stuff done, kids in bed by seven. And then I work till one o'clock in the morning and you're like, living a four hour sleep in a full weekend of stuff and you like, well, you get back to work on Monday and like you're toasted. And I think that's that's that that can't happen. Um and until organizations fully accept that uh, they probably need to invest better um and not scrimp on the sides and then uh or just set different levels of expectations of we've invested in this so this we can only expect this. Um then I don't think things will change significantly until that's properly uh, looked at.
0: Yeah, and even working for yourself now, <laughs> the problem is that, that you can have similar boundary problems, but maybe even worse. Then, um, because you know, just speaking from personal experience, that you can always say, "Oh, I'm just going in my in my office to reply to so and so," or "Oh goodness, I've just got to write a post it note," you know, and stick it on my keyboard. But then the temptation is there to to open up email or to You know, you think, oh, man, and sometimes with writing, you know, like you mentioned with that holiday, the muse comes to you and you can go on a hot streak. But suddenly you haven't seen your, (laughs) you know, your wife or kids for if you take out most of the weekends for really multiple weeks at a time and you're just grinding and grinding and you can kind of put it down to well, you know, this is my role within the family or I'm just trying to serve my clients well or, you know, I'm just trying to beat this deadline. There's always one of those crappy justifications, right? And so how have you, in that transition to kind of working more for yourself and and the consultancy and the leadership programs you do now, how have you you tried to put up some guardrails that prevents you slipping into that? Now you're more on that kind of working for yourself rather than being in a performance center all day.
2: Yeah, it's... um... I'll be honest. I'm not very good at it. Partly because I started my business three months before COVID started. Um, so I was in a fight for my life for the first kind of eight or nine months, just doing um, whatever I, I could to keep the, the business going. And um, and that took a very understanding uh, wife to be able to to um, give me the space to do that. Uh, I don't think she actually wanted or agreed with it, but recognised it was a, what's had to happen and so I I talk about kind of lead and lag behaviors and my lead behaviors are things that I do on a kind of daily basis which are healthy and the lags are the unhealthy behaviors um and certain things which I know I'm much better at is is like when I when I sleep well when I exercise I eat well I'm up with the kids when they're up in the morning and I'm about when they're at bedtime or when they get back from school um but also some of my my lead behaviors is I have to have eight hours a day um doing the stuff that I have to do um around it uh, and that's uninterrupted and kind of like almost my deep work but if that's all good then I'm, I'm in a good place but rarely does that happen and I think for me um there's often times where it will kind of evolve and like the, kind of the boundaries are um crossed over and the big thing for me is I know when I've crossed over those boundaries and uh, once I've crossed them, I know that I need to need to step back. And the dangerous part for me is when I choose not to. Um, and that's when I'm, you know, 10 o'clock at night, I'm, like, I'm going to finish here and that's go to bed or I'll just get this done and I'm there till one o'clock in the morning. And that's my, and I'm choosing not to um, listen to my kind of warning signs and then pay the consequence for it because I don't get up in the morning to train and train. When the kids get out of bed I'm grotty with them because I'm tired and, and so on and they feel that it. and it's amazing isn't it how kids uh, mirror your uh, your behavior um, and so so you know, and that's that for me is my my um, my mirror really isn't it? like you can when my kids are feeling like that and they're responding the way they do to me I'm like yeah that's probably my, me not them um, so I am getting better I definitely haven't got it right right now. Um, cause I'm still trying to, trying to build, but it is a million times better than what it was back in April, 2020, where it was, um, yeah, not a great place to be for anyone.
1: Yep. Well, what I think is important too, is you have a lot of, um, seems like you have a lot of interest to get your mind off of work and, and, um, you know, uh, my understanding is that you're a novice gardener and a, uh, amateur chef. So tell us
2: about that. Um yeah, my um well, when when was it? About about three years ago, just yeah, twenty nineteen, we um me and my father in law gutted our back garden and we rebuilt rebuilt it all, put a new um patio in and new beds in and so on. And I found it one of the most enjoyable times to be out gardening and I just didn't didn't expect didn't expect to um be doing that at all um I just thought well, I, I don't really enjoy cutting grass but mm. um when I when I got to kind of planting and kind of caring for it um or and like I just it was almost to a point where like, like you were so focused on that I had no headspace to think about anything else and it was such a um I'm gonna use the word joy because it, it is I just I find great joy in in um um being in the garden and the same with cooking. Like I love, I love cooking. Um, and I, as I said, I'm an amateur chef. I'm definitely, I, I should replace chef with cook because I don't think I'm anywhere near as uh, competent as others, but I, I, I love experimenting and my eldest daughter now has got the taste for, uh, Indian food. Um, which is, which is music to my ears because I love cooking, um, a- Asian food. Um, and our neighbors are, um, from Sri Lankan heritage and they, that once a week they come around with a, a, um, some food for us, um, which is, yeah. And that always inspires me to kind of think of something new to, new to, new to cook. Um, but more recently I've just got into woodwork. Um, the, um, I've got something called the national trust in, in the UK, which looks after loads of buildings and lands and they have got some voluntary woodcraft, uh, Crafty in the Surrey Hills, so I've been down there sort of helping build random bits of furniture or um, stuff to sell in their in their, in their shops, which again it's really quite a cathartic cathartic thing to do to just turn your head your mind off and just do something totally different
1: yeah I think that's a recipe for for a really good life what you're saying there's a nice balance between left brain activities and you know the the the, the writing the learning. Um, and then right brain activities: uh, cooking, gardening, woodwork, those kind of things, um, and just being so vitally involved in your life. But like you said, knowing your values and uh, putting family first, and then everything follows from there. So I think that's a a, a really nice recipe for all of us to think about. Yeah, yeah I agree. Do you?
0: Do you oh, I was just going to say, do you find that there's kind of some crossover even though as Jim said there's kind of one's more left brain and one one's more right brain um between those hobbies and and what you mentioned which is a a term obviously that Cal Newport and others have uh have been kind of writing books around for a while which is deep work do you kind of feel a similar sense of flow and you know time kind of stands still or you become unaware of time and what are some crossovers between when you're you've got your eight hours a day of you know deep productivity and then the woodworking um the, the cook to chef transition the gardening
2: <laughs> yeah it's um yeah I think, I think I think is it is it um Mahali Chet Mahali who spoke about is it flow I think it was and like sorry I, that was the first bit I kind of could kind of resonate resonate with um with some of that uh, that stuff there and, and I kind of got a sense when I first started reading bits about that it was much more to do with, um, um, kind of work, work. And then, then very quickly realized it's when, when I started thinking about, and it was the first came when I was doing a lot of the cooking is that I, I am, I'm in much better, uh, I'm in a much better flow or, or kind of much better when I'm cooking on my own and I'm not having to, um, talk to anybody or have somebody help me. Um, and I think what I've worked out is that it's my time and my kind of like my switch off time. And actually if I, if I can just do it on my own, it's um, um, I get real, real pleasure from it. Um, and I get, um, I just, it sounds awful. I don't like sharing it, um, which I just, just want to do it, do it, do it myself. Um, and even cooking pancakes for the kids earlier. Um for, for dinner um i just wanted to do it i didn't want anyone else to do it but um um but i think that's probably more my um my desire of just wanting to do more, more of it but yeah so i do i do think the the when i when i'm in when i'm in that space there i can spend a whole afternoon just in the garden and suddenly i know it's, it's the sun's coming down and it's you know it's seven o'clock in the evening and i'm like well where, where's the afternoon gone um Probably too much of the annoyance of the rest of the family, but I, I do. But the garden does look good.
1: Yeah, just don't pick up golf because <laughs> you'll uh, <laughs> they'll never see you at that point. Uh,
2: but, um, yeah, fair point. What,
1: what do you have coming up? Uh, what? What? Uh, tell us what's next for you. Uh, some uh, some fun fun things that are coming up for you that you're uh, really excited about.
2: So we, we're. Um, I'm, I'm spending a bit of time. Um, over the next few weeks we we've got a big project with UK coaching which is the governing body in uh, the UK which looks after grassroots through to elite level coaching um, in the country and we've got this really cool project with them which is how we can support coaches to view physical preparation but through the eyes of the coach and not through the, the strength conditioning coach, um, which totally, you know, switches on, on its head, which I think is going to be a, a really, um, a really cool um, outlook really, because I think it's been a long time coming. Um, and again, get to work with some really cool coaches in, 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 in the process. Um, and then we're back off to Italy in a c- couple of weeks time as well, which is again, get more of my carbonara, um and then yeah i think they're, they're, they're the, the big ones and then we, it's just, actually we are building this um a short course on on something called like knowing 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 self and knowing others and it is really just a short course just to give people an, an insight into a lot of what we've spoken about about today about how you view the world what you what you value most and how you can kind of leverage that to kind of help yourself and help others so that that should that's been quite cool I'm working with a colleague from a I used to work with a long time ago um and probably as you, you know as you work with work by yourself it's um always good to work with um people you really like doing things that you really enjoy doing and I think that's that's kind of gives you the freedom to explore a bit more so yeah it's got a good 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 few projects coming up
0: Oh, absolutely is is there a part of a consulting now that um or maybe you you know as you mentioned when you were in the trenches deep during the pandemic where you tried a couple of different things and one that you maybe didn't expect would be you know a lot of people would be needing or be receptive to that really hit with people
2: yeah actually the 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 stuff i'm doing out in italy um was a bit of a side hustle um and suddenly it's it's properly exploded um when we've got people buying courses online and we've got um contracts here here there and everywhere and suddenly it's i've had to reorganize my priorities of actually where I need to spend my time because actually it's becoming more of a significant income generator than we ever thought it would be um and that 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 all all spawned from 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 covid um, But then I've also had equally very unsuccessful things come from COVID as well, where I look back at that and I was like, well, yeah, we were, we were definitely way off mark with what we were, what we were trying to do there. But I suppose you've got to throw a few things at the wall and see what sticks.
0: Well, that's like writing a lot of books. (laughs) It's very (laughs) rare that, I mean, sometimes you kind of know, but it's rare that, you know, something, and this is what publishers do these days, as you know, like they they're Seem to be placing more and more, you know, money behind sure bets. Like if John Grisham wants to write another thirty books in the next twenty years, then I'm sure his current publisher has him locked up, and they know if they spend, you know, a hundred grand on marketing here, they'll probably make a million back. Um, whereas for everyone else, it's kind of getting tougher. And so, uh, yeah, it's it, it's a funny old game. Um, anytime you're doing things either you know with a collaborator like Jim and I do or or by yourself or with a group of people that sometimes the best intentions as you said earlier um, aren't borne out and other times you know something that you thought oh we'll just you know try this when we have time and put a little time into it suddenly there is that demand so and I guess that that comes back to kind of balancing those um, priorities when you're looking at multiple you know relationships with, with different collaborators you're looking at you know, a book over here, the in-person stuff in Italy here, do you have any decision-making filters? Maybe it goes back to your 3F model from earlier that, that you run new opportunities. So say a longtime collaborator comes and says, well, Alex, I, I thought maybe we could do this, this, and this. And you think, well, I'm, I could maybe do one of the three. Um, how would you get to, to to that point of making that decision?
2: it's interesting because what you've just described was pretty much the first 18 months of covid people coming and saying i've got this this and this um and i had two filters um my first was to um understand what they were asking and actually were they wanting me to do the work and do the kind of the leg bit um which then the first filter was like okay if we're going to do this a partnership is going to we'll, we'll do a profit share which is much more favorable in, in, for me because i'm going to do a lot more of the work and then you and if they got really um arsy with that it was like well are you going to do this bit it's like no it's like well then it's not going to happen then you can only do this if i do that so that's my first filter and that that cut probably uh 99 of everything that came through through the door The second bit. Um and I've done it probably four times now since the beginning of COVID. Um, I just stopped emailing or communicating with everybody. Um I just just see what happened. Um and the ones that continue to contact me were the ones that I'm still doing now. Any in that kind of two week period where nobody um if somebody didn't contact me in two weeks, they clearly weren't moving it forward and they clearly weren't interested. So I was like, Well, that's gonna be entirely on me to move this forward and if I don't have the energy and the, and the motivation to to do it, it, it's not going to be picked up by them. So that they, that that went by the way, ways uh, wayside as well. Um, and then the other bit for me is being much more ruthless with my timing. Um, and so this this between now and the end of March, where I've been really clear that like, it's all about content creation for the c- projects that we we're on, and I'm not taking any more projects on unless we're going to be doing it in uh, April or May time. So there just isn't is, isn't time. So it's just being ruthless about where you have the time to do to do that. Um, and one of the bits I've got to get a lot better at is two things. Well, same point, but two things. Is one is making sure that I've got time booked in during kind of like Easter holidays, summer, and so on, and pre planning that so that's booked in, so I don't make the mistake of trying to put too much in. But also making sure. That when I do go away on leave and so on, and my uh, my wife was very justified in a comment yesterday about me not being away for five days and then not actually being able to see her for um, the next couple of days is actually when I'm away, bring fencing time during the week for 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 the family. And so when I'm in good form, I do that really well. When I'm in bad form, it doesn't quite work. But those are the yeah, they're the three things I do. But I think the first two are are critical, just in filtering out who the The chances are, uh, and who are the the genuine genuine people?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that that kind of uh, principle that you've probably heard of—it's either a a quick hell yes or or a quick hell no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, and and I think since I've been working for myself, um, and particularly with when the COVID was going on, I kind of had had to say yes to quite a lot of things just because I needed to keep keep things moving on um and think now things have settled that I've had to kind of retrain myself not to say yes to everything um and that was the biggest my biggest learning is like I just don't need to do everything um and some things I will choose to do because it excites me some things I choose to do because it's helping um a good buddy of mine um and they may not be the things which Unless we pay all the bills but the things that I, I get real joy from um whereas um a lot of the stuff i, I yeah it's i I've, I've got a lot better now just yeah doing the hell no um sooner rather than later
0: yeah, I feel like I need to personally go back and listen to this periodically cuz <laughs> you know, um Greg Greg McKeown's Essentialism book is one that I've, you know, yeah. read often and touted and then Cal Newport's Deep Work, but there is the fear factor, particularly with a family. You know, if it was just you on your own in a little apartment with no no strings and no other people counting on you, then maybe things might be different or we just become worse at workaholics. I don't know. We need some kind of support group probably. But uh, yeah, for me, I think that it's um, you you start to sometimes justify things with, oh, well, it won't take very long would be one. Oh, well, we had kind of a down month or two, as you mentioned, like the COVID period um, where you lost a couple of clients maybe or a couple of things didn't pan out. And then so if you make decisions based on what you would say is necessity, but really they're fear-based, then you end up very quickly moving from some semblance of essentialism to non-essentialism, and you're always kind of vacillating between feast and famine, right? And there's maybe rarely a a middle ground.
2: Yeah, you're you're, you're spot on there. And I think what you just described there was probably the first several months of, of COVID as I was kind of scrambling and making sense of things. Um, and I think that's, that, that is, I'm I'm much better now at, um, yeah, just making, making sense of it. And, And, and the kind of the decision making that you, you, um, also make, I think comes down to the understanding what your, I think two things. One is understanding the value you can actually offer. Um, and the second of what your, um, minimal cost of living is as well. So once I worked out what my minimal cost of living was. Um, then it, we worked out, that's just what I had to bring in, um, each, each month. But then the value bit was like, well, I could, and, and it sounds, I hate talking about this stuff because it's all about money, but then, but basically I just got to the point where it's like, well, actually I'm much more valuable than what you think it is. So I'm not going to under, under sell myself and, and kind of, kind of really struggle to do the work in a time frame which is probably unfeasible for a fee which is like you know it's not great and actually i could have in that time could have done something totally different and that, what 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 i would have made from that wouldn't have been enough to change any any of my situation so we've i've been we've been much firmer in, in, in kind of the in the projects we've been on about what our value is now and we just can't drop below that so it's either you kind of afford it or you can't and it's and it's it's it's, it's fine and um it's i know it's quite crass talking about in that way there but it may it makes me makes my decision making a lot easier because they say oh, i've only got that it's like well it's a no then um and you don't even have to consider it anymore
1: yeah definitely feast or snack not feast or famine
2: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah yeah well i like that i haven't heard that before but i'm, I'm taking that
1: well, speaking of snacks, what are you gonna? Did you already have dinner? What are you? Uh, what, what are you gonna cook next? And uh, next time, if uh, well, next time, uh, first time uh, we meet you in person, we'll take you out for some good Indian food. <laughs> so,
2: oh, that sounds good. Uh, I'm not sure actually because I've I, I, because I was away all week um, over the weekend. I have no idea what the uh, what was on the um, on the menu. we girls and I've had pancakes already for. For dinner so i'm sure i'm gonna be um feasting on those um when i uh when i get downstairs
1: yeah thanks so much for all the uh you know no pun intended bad dad joke but food for thought for all of us uh these are important topics without a lot of necessarily you know clear-cut answers but they're good to talk about they're good to think about uh i think we hit on a lot of really important things for entrepreneurs for you know business professionals for for people interested in high performance so um like like phil said you know this is a good episode for i think the three of us to listen to again (laughs) so
0: yeah uh, absolutely
1: yeah and 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 think more about and and make good decisions for our lives but
0: yeah try to try to thank you very much for having me yeah try to uh actually do it right rather than just saying it (laughs) which is always the trap with high performance right and the old the old joke is like if you want to wreck your own physical fitness become a coach you know i've heard countless coaches (laughs) kind of it's a bit of a truism but um a true truism maybe (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: yeah i think that's a fair um a fair reflection of many many individuals i've worked with um and myself included like it's kind of it takes it doesn't doesn't come big enough high enough at the priority list and it goes out the window
0: yeah, definitely. Well, this has been great. Um, could you share with listeners where they can keep up with you, um, where they can get the book, and um, any other ways that, or you know, specific courses that you you want to speak about?
2: Yeah, so I am um, actually a lot more active now on on Twitter and Instagram, and um, I'm on uh, my handling is, is at Alex P. Wolf. Um, the anyone that's interested in the strength conditioning it's is all around problem solving and creativity within 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 that space they can go to strength conditioning dot academy uh, and you can find the links to all the all the uh, courses and the content that we we've, we've got there uh, they're the best they'll be the best places to to um uh, to find me um and i'm starting to do a bit more blogging again um so hopefully that will will be up and uh running by april and have some content which would be very much around learning leadership reflection um and actually do a lot more around creativity and problem solving too
0: Oh, absolutely and um is the book available just in all regular online and in-person booksellers or
2: yeah i think so um i have to be honest um uh i think this, this sounds awful. The print run was so low on the first the first one. I think it kind of sold out in in um, the UK, but I do know it's still available in the, in, in, on Amazon in um, um, in in the in the US. I think it's on and in, in a few of the other ones. But that, that's strength conditioning for rowing. And the first four, I think, four chapters are nothing to do with rowing. It's all about the the act and art of being a coach. So if you want more about that, it, that's it's probably worth picking it up just for those first four chapters
0: yeah a lot of principles that anyone in any field can apply that's looking for high performance and maybe to find a bit more balance too yeah absolutely terrific well thank you so much Alex this has been a real pleasure and hopefully we can run it back for a part two I know Jim and I have both have a lot more questions and there are so many great topics you introduced to everyone so we we appreciate your time today and uh, even more so your insight no worries thanks for having us thanks for joining us if you enjoyed this episode Please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today and we'll see you back here next week.